have your Bible today, I'd like you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 19 today, and we're going to start in verse 28. Luke chapter 19 and verse 28, and today we're going to diverge a little bit from our little uh, mini-series, if you want to call it that. We've been talking about the Trinity for the last three weeks, and today we're going to uh, kind of pause for that, and we're going to talk about the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And I understand when I talk about the triumphal entry, it was not triumphal in the sense that the Jews recognized their Messiah and accepted him as such. Now, if, if we only had the first part of the, the text that we're going to read today, you would think that that was the case because everybody was all excited. They were singing Hosanna and, and all these different things, and, and they, were, they were worshiping and praising God. But it is triumphal in the sense that the long-awaited Messiah finally came onto the scene, and he presented himself as the promised Messiah and deliverer. Now, um, the, the thing is about people, and you probably have figured this out, you probably have seen it, uh, people are kind of fickle. And, and the, thing about, uh, the thing about these people is many of them were, were praising God and seeing Jesus as, as the Messiah, the Redeemer. Uh, but it wasn't but just a few short days later they turned on him and they called for his crucifixion. And as we work our way through the text, I want you to see that they rejected the Savior. Now we're get, getting ahead of ourselves. Where we pick up in our text in, uh, is towards the end of chapter 19. And what happened in, in the first part of chapter 19 is an encounter with a wee little man. Does anybody remember who he is? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He was short. The Bible says he was small in stature. And so, uh, so Jesus has come along. He's headed to Jerusalem for his last week on earth. Zacchaeus hears that he's coming. He wants to see Jesus, but he can't because he's a shorty. And so he climbs up a sycamore tree to see Jesus. Jesus has an encounter with him. Zacchaeus gets saved, and all the people around are, are, are kind of amazed at all. They're all thinking that, uh, that the, the kingdom of God is getting ready to appear suddenly and, uh, and very, very soon. So Jesus tells a story to correct that. And he tells a story about a nobleman that goes off to receive a kingdom. And, and in, the, in the process of all this, the citizens, citizens of that kingdom, even though he was the rightful ruler, they say they don't want him to rule over them. And so they, they reject their nobleman. They reject their king. And so the nobleman comes back, and at, at the end of the story, it's, it's a little bit darker than what we usually think of with the parables of Jesus. But at the end of the story, in, uh, in verse 27, we're not going to read it, but in, in verse 27, uh, this nobleman calls for these enemies that didn't want him to rule over them, and he says, slay them in my presence. So they were judged. They rejected their king, and they were judged for it. So then in verse 28, where we pick up today, it says, it talks about as he's, after he said these things. So I just want you to understand, he's just gotten through telling this story to the people about these, these citizens who rejected their ruler, and they were judged for it. He's going to continue on to Jerusalem, and it's here that we see the triumphal entry of the Lord. And as we walk our way through the text, I want you to see that the promised Messiah was rejected, and the people would be judged for it. Now, if you found... Luke 19:28. I'd ask uh, that you stand with me if you're able to honor God's word, and we'll pick up and read into verse uh, 44. It says, after he said these, had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent to the disciples, saying, "Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever." No one yet has ever said, untie it and bring it here. 
If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, uh, who were sent, went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you, in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Thank you. you may be seated. The first thing I want you to see in our text today is, uh, is the prepared circumstances. The prepared circumstances. Now, when Jesus entered Jerusalem as the Messiah, he did so under particular prepared circumstances. And what I mean by that is Jesus didn't just show up at Jerusalem uh, on any old day, but rather he came on a specific day. He came during the time of the Passover. Now, I, I know you're probably not super familiar with all the laws and stuff in the book of Leviticus, right? Because we get to Leviticus and we're reading through the Bible, and we get to Leviticus and we're like, okay, can't make it, I'm done, and that's it. But in Leviticus, one of the things that it talks about, and not, not just Leviticus, other places too, but, but um, the Bible tells us that there were three feasts that the Jews were obligated to go to Jerusalem for. And one of those is the Feast of Passover. Another one is the Feast of uh, Pentecost, which we, we know played a big part in the birth of the church uh, in the book of Acts. Anyway, so Jesus comes onto the scene in Jerusalem around the time of the Passover. And understand, when they, went to the, when they went to Jerusalem for the Passover, this was not some sort of a, a dull, sad trip. Okay, they didn't go up singing laments. Instead, it, it was a time of, of celebration. And, and in fact, if you're reading the book of Psalms, you may have noticed towards the end, like Psalm 120 to Psalm 132, 134, something like that, there are a series of psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascent. Maybe you've noticed that, maybe you've never noticed that, but if you'll, if you'll notice sometime when you're reading those, it'll have a, a superscription called the Psalms of Ascent. And what, what that is, is Jerusalem was up on a hill. So if you went to Jerusalem, you went up to Jerusalem. And so what these, what these pilgrims would do, uh, they would, as, as they made this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they would sing the Psalms. Because understand, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, was their Baptist hymnal. Okay, that is what they used in their times of worship. So they would, they would sing these psalms as they ascended up to Jerusalem. It, it was a time of, of heightened uh, nationalistic pride, of, of, uh, of fervor, of patriotism. And, and remember what the Passover celebrated. It was a remembrance of God, how, miracu- how God had miraculously delivered the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. And so it's kind of like our Fourth of July. You know, when, when Fourth of July comes, we hear... God bless the USA, old Lee Greenwood singing. We hear, uh, God bless America, and 
she's a grand old flag, we see fireworks and all this stuff, and everybody has this swelled up pride of, we're Americans, USA, right? Well, that's the way that the Israelites felt during the time of Passover because there's this time of, of hope and expectation that, that, that somehow that God would, would send the Messiah and he would overthrow these Romans that were coming in and, and had taken over. And so we have all these people, we have all this expectation, and that is the scene into which Jesus uh, uh, comes, uh, comes onto the scene. So we not only have uh, prepared surroundings, we also have a prepared ride. Now if you'll notice, we have kind of a, a curious story. Because Jesus, in verse 30, he tells two of his disciples, we don't know which ones they were, two of his disciples, go get a colt, colt on which no one has ever ridden. Now, I am not a horse person, mule person, donkey person. I, I don't ride animals. I did ride a pig one time, but that was, that was against my will. Um, yeah, so anyway, if I were to pick an animal to ride on, I probably wouldn't pick one that's never been ridden on. I'd want one that had been broken, right? I, I would want one that, was, that, that kind of plods along. You remember Festus from Gunsmoke? I mean, I'd want, I'd want a Festus horse or a Festus mule. I mean, he just, it just plods along. Jesus didn't do that. He chose one that had never been ridden before. And, and so he says, go and get this colt on which no one has ever ridden. And, and you'll, you'll go into a certain village and you'll see a colt tied there. You don't bother talking to anybody, you just untie him. And then if somebody challenges you on this, you tell them the, Lord, the, the master has need of it and it'll be all good. And so they go Unsurprisingly, they found it just like Jesus said it would be. They untied the colt. The owner says, what are you doing? Master needs it. All right, go on. Now, we don't know if this was a miraculous event or not. Because at the time, it was customary when a dignitary or even a religious leader would come into an area, many times they would just borrow people's stuff, including their animals. So it could be that Jesus was just doing what was customary. It could be that this, the owner of the of this animal was was in this fervor that the rest of the people were, the, the passers-by, they were excited. Maybe he got caught up in that. Quite possibly, he was one of Jesus' followers. And sometime before Jesus had, had set this up and said, you know what, I'm going to be coming through this, this, this area on this time. I want you to have this ready. But why? You just have it ready. And maybe that was like a... And, and you'll know... You'll know my guys because they'll untie. You ask them. It's, it's kind of like the code words getting into the getting into the building. You know, uh, uh, maybe that's what it was. It could be that Jesus practiced and used his omniscience. Maybe he just knew because he's God that there's going to be a cult tied there, and he knew if if he said the master has need of it, that was all that was needed. We don't know, but whatever the whatever the situation was we can see this was a prepared situation. You say, now what is so important about this? Why do the Gospels record that Jesus rode in on, on, on this cult? What's the big deal? Well, one of the biggest deals is it fulfilled prophecy. Zechariah 9.9 said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, we know uh, from, from the other Gospels that Jesus' closest followers, his disciples, didn't realize they were fulfilling prophecy. 
It wasn't until after Jesus was resurrected they're like, oh, yeah, I remember that. We were in the middle of it. So it was probably nobody there realized what was going on, but be that as it may, this was part of the foreordained plan of God to bring about salvation. Down to the smallest detail, God fulfilled his prophecy. So we have prepared circumstances. The next thing I want you to see is, is the procession of the king and the praising crowd. So they bring the cult to Jesus. Never been ridden. So naturally, it doesn't have any kind of saddle on it of any kind. And so the disciples, they threw their coats on it for Jesus to sit on. Now I'm sure that these disciples would have liked to have had something nicer to give Jesus. But they gave him what they had. They put their coats on the, on the animal so Jesus could sit on. But they, they didn't just put their coats on the animal. What else did they do with their coats? The Bible says that, that uh, they threw their coats out on the ground. Look at verse 36. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. Now that might seem like an odd thing. Why would you put coats on the ground for an animal to walk on? Well, it's, it's customary in, in all cultures when there's somebody significant going to an area to do something special to the ground. Even in America. Say, oh, Pastor, you don't know what you're talking about. When was the last time you've been to a wedding? You remember back at when, even, even when me and Scarlett got married, it was not, it's been a while, but, but they had a runner. Anybody remember the runners? There'd be this big roll of, of fabric up the front, and the the guys would pull it back. Remember that? They'd unroll it, and what happened? Well, here come the bride. And that's not really in vogue right now. There's still flower girls. You're thinking about that? Why do? Why are there flower girls? I mean, what's the point of dropping flower petals on the ground? Preparing the way, right? It's, you're doing something special to the ground. In Hollywood, when all the, all the big wigs get together, all the celebrities, they roll out what? Red carpet. Same thing. Uh, and, and they did it in ancient times too. They, they, would, they would spread stuff out in the way. You used to, you probably have heard about, read about, maybe even seen or experienced. If, if a man and a woman were, were walking along and there was a puddle, what would he do with his coat sometimes? Put it over the puddle so, so she didn't get her foot wet. I don't know what he did with his coat after that. He couldn't wear it. But, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. They, they did stuff like that in ancient cultures. And in fact, we even have an instance of this elsewhere in Scripture. There's this, just one little verse in the book of 2 Kings. Jehu was installed as king. He was, he was the guy that, you remember, uh, he, he, the Bible says he drove furiously. He was, if he had a car, the pedal would be to the metal. He was the one that pulled up, and there's Jezebel all painted up, leaning out the window. You remember this? He says, hey, if you're with me, throw her out the window. That's Jehu. He was installed as king, and in 2 Kings 9.13, the Bible says that, that he was installed as king, and they put their coats on the stairs for him to walk on. So, so this, was, this was a customary thing. They were treating him with honor, but not just with their acts, but also with their words. You'll notice in verse 37, they're shouting his praise. They're praising God, verse 37, or in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
Now, when I think of this, and maybe I'm the oddball out, I mean now, but when I think of this, maybe you're the same way. You think maybe, maybe you had 50 people around him. Maybe you had 100 people around him. Be pushing if he had maybe a thousand people around him. That'd be that'd be quite a crowd, wouldn't it? Now the Bible says that that he was leading, he was he was headed into Jerusalem, and it appears that not only was he leading a large group of people into Jerusalem, but John's Gospel says that a bunch of people came out from Jerusalem to meet him. So we have this huge crowd of people around Jesus, and we don't know how many people were there, but there's a a Jewish by the name of Flavius Josephus. You probably have heard of him. And he wrote about stuff that was going on around this same time. And there was a, a Passover that he was writing about, contemporary, pretty much the time of Jesus' uh, ministry. And he estimated there were no less than 3 million Jews in Jerusalem. Now think about that. Because remember, everybody at Passover unless you're sick or on a long journey or something like that. Everybody's there. So we have most of the whole nation is in this city. And we don't know how many people came out from the city. We don't know how many people were coming into the city this time. Obviously, not all three million were out there at the same time. But I just want you to realize, this is a big group. And they're all welcoming Jesus. They're praising God. They're, they're, they're welcoming their Messiah. And no wonder, in John 12, 19, the Pharisees, they look at each other and they say, you're not doing any good. The whole world's following him. Because when you have that many people there, they're all shouting the same thing. It seems like everybody's on board. Now, up until this point, Jesus had dissuaded people from making him king. You remember there was one time that he had performed a miracle and the people went to make him king and he had to slip out through their midst. Sometimes he performed a miracle and he didn't say, hey, put it up on the billboard. Put in Jerusalem Times. What do you say? Don't tell anybody. You just go and show yourself to the priest. You just keep it to yourself. Don't tell anybody. Keep it a secret. But now the opposite is true because the Pharisees, they see what's happening. They say, Jesus, tell your disciples to sh well, not shut up. That's not a nice thing to say. Be quiet. Stop talking. Stop praising God. Stop, stop singing Hosanna. Stop blessing the... You know, stop, stop saying all this stuff. And what's Jesus' response? He says... This event, this is my paraphrase, this event is so momentous, is so earth-shatteringly important that if these people were silenced, inanimate objects like the rocks would cry out. That's how big of a deal this is. Now, so far, so good, right? If we stop there, we might say, Jesus has got it going on. I mean, he's the Messiah. The people sees he's the Messiah. They're welcoming him. End of story. But if you'll notice, the text goes on. We have prepared circumstances, the, uh, the procession of the king, the praising crowd. Finally, I want you to see the predicted calamity. The predicted calamity. Just like this parable that Jesus told right before this, in which the people rejected their rightful ruler and they were judged, he predicts that's going to happen to Jerusalem. And it ends on kind of a, kind of a sad note, doesn't it? Now, now get, look at verse 41. Because this is something that, I mean, if, if we're in the midst of a crowd, probably thousands and thousands of people, everybody's singing, everybody's praising God, and, and we're at the center of it, 
we'd probably be smiling, wouldn't we? We'd probably be happy. But look at verse 41. Then, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. So here are all these people praising God. Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hallelujah, amen, all these things. People are shouting. And the Bible says that in the midst of that, Jesus wept. Now sometimes, and men, you've never done this. Ladies, you probably have maybe have done it. You see something that gets you right in the feels. You know what I mean? You see a video of that soldier coming home, and the, the kid runs up, they're hugging him. And you get a speck of dust in your eye about that time in that morning. Or, or your allergies start acting up. It's like, oh, these are, my eyes are watering. That wasn't the case with Jesus. The, the, way, the, the wording that's used here doesn't talk about like tears rolling down the, down the cheeks silently, like, oh, okay, I hope nobody sees me. This is an audible, loud lament. So in the midst of these people praising God, singing Hosannas, Jesus is audibly crying. He weeps. And why does he weep? Look at what he says in verse 43. Here's the prediction. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you do not recognize the time of your visitation. History tells us this happened exactly like Jesus said it would. Now I just want to, I just want to pause here because your translation may read slightly differently here. Your Bible may say that, that these enemies in, in uh, verse 43 would cast a trench around the city. And when we think of a trench, we think of just basically a big ditch, right? But the wording originally had the connotation of a wall, of a barricade. Now, history tells us that in A.D. 66, the Jews revolted against Roman rule. You probably have heard about... Uh, uh, some of those things, you probably have read some of those things with Matthias and some of them. But they revolted against Roman rule. And so in AD 70, Rome sends Titus, the general, to take care of the problem. And so what Titus does, and, and Josephus writes this, and you can, you can read it in his, I think it's Wars of the Jews book. Titus gets to Jerusalem. They've got a wall around it. And so he talks to the, the other strategic planners. And they have, a, they have a conference. Well, we could attack the city, but we're, we're so powerful. We have, all, we have the numbers on our side. I don't want to attack the city because they're weak and we can, you know, we can do this without losing much of our lives. So how about we uh, surround the city with the army? Well, if we do that, some people, they know the area, they may be able to sneak out. Let's not do that. Well, we, we could just set up a, a siege and, you know, there may be a little bit of stuff going in and out, but that may take too long and I lose some of the glory. So here's what we'll do. We'll put a wall all the way around the city, just like Jesus said, him, him and men on every side. We'll put a wall all the way around the city, a barricade, so nobody can get in, nobody can get out, totally cut off from everything. So that's what they decide to do. Now, the Romans like to do big tasks. I mean, there are still aqueducts today that stand, and, and Rome built them. They did things that are just absolutely amazing, and they did an amazing feat here. 
Josephus tells us how many furlongs long this wall is, about five miles, just under. A five-mile wall they built three days. Three days. That is incredible. Three days. Now, I mean, we can't even have a business meeting in three days. They built a whole wall around the city in three days. And it completely cut the people off. And history records some of the terrible things that happened in the famine about people, be, you know, they, they were cut off from food and originally people were dying, they'd bury them. But then they'd start leaving the bodies out because the people that were burying them were in the same boat and they, they didn't have the strength to dig a hole in, and they, they didn't have any place to put the people after a while. And, and they would, they began to throw the putrefying bodies over the wall and, and, and it, it was just a horrible time. And after a while, the city was so weak and Titus and his army went in and just leveled the place. And I've read that an estimated 600,000 Jews died during this whole attack. Now I just want to put that in, in terms of Missouri cities. That would be the equivalent of the population of St. Louis and Springfield and Columbia combined, dead. That's a lot of people. Jesus predicted it, and in a span of only about 40 years, 70 A.D., it happened. Now, that is kind of depressing. It's an interesting piece of history, but what does that have to do with us today? I think one of the things that stands out to me the most out of this whole account is how the people had every reason to believe in Jesus. They had him there in the flesh. They had heard his teachings. They had seen his life. When the religious leaders were trying to uh, trip him up, they, they heard the answers. They, they, you know, they heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. They heard the, the Beatitudes. They knew about, about the raising of Lazarus. In John's Gospel, Jesus raised Lazarus from the, from the dead in chap, John chapter 11. In John chapter 12, he enters Jerusalem. I mean, this was happening right on the heels of this tremendous miracle. They knew what was going on. They had every reason to believe, and they still rejected the Messiah. And it led to judgment. Today, we have no less reason to believe He's the same Jesus now as he was then. We have, we have his, his death that we can look back on, his death on the cross, and people still reject the Messiah. And there's an inherent warning here to make sure that we are in the faith. Because these people missed it, and we can miss it too. They could miss the Messiah, and people today can as well. We, we, need, to, we, we need to make sure because... If people reject the Messiah today, they will suffer judgment as well. Now, it's not going to be a Roman general coming in and, and starving us out and, and taking over and conquering us, but instead, it's going to be far worse. Because the judgment that happens if we reject him is eternal separation from God in conscious torment in hell. If you reject Jesus, that's where you're headed. So today, as we think of the triumphal entry, if you've never... Put your faith in Christ and repent of your sins. I call on you to do that today. But I know that many of us here have done that. We are in the faith. We'll even brave coming out in, in snow 
on the triumphal entry day. We, we, put, we put our faith in Christ. We believe in Him. We, we believe on Him. Listen, for us this should be a reminder of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. See, this, this, this crowd and their cheers, they didn't fool Jesus. When he was weeping, it wasn't because maybe somebody whispered something mean in his ear. It, it, nothing like that. He knew what was happening. That's the whole reason he was going to Jerusalem. He was going to die. The cross was not a surprise to him. It was a plan from the beginning, the plan of God to save sinners. As we get into this season, I know that, that some religious communities have been doing you know, all the, the, the Ash Wednesday and different things. We haven't really focused on that, but as we get into this season in earnest, this is a reminder, and it should cause us to reflect on the, of the sacrifice on our behalf, the high price that Christ paid for us. Why don't you stand with me as musicians come? And as you stand, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Nobody looking around. I just want you to think about the sacrifice of Jesus. When we think about scenes that maybe we've seen in movies of, of the scourgings, the beatings, and the crown of thorns, and the nails, and those things are horrible, tremendous pain. But an even deeper agony was the Son of God to have perfect fellowship with the Father in all eternity. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. The sinless became the sin bearer. And on that cross in his body he bore our sins. But he didn't stay dead. So on that third day, he rose again. And because of that, we can have eternal life. Because of that, you can have eternal life. And maybe you, maybe you have put your faith in Christ. That eternal life didn't cost you anything, but it cost him everything. When's the last time you thought about it? When's the last time you said thank you to the Lord? Those of us maybe come to church, we've heard the gospel, we've heard preaching, maybe we've gone through different ceremonies, but we've never put our faith in Christ. The Bible says that if you'll come to him, he'll no wise cast you out. If you come to him, he won't turn you away, he won't say you're too you're too bad, you're not good enough. If you'll come to him, he will save you. God, I, I thank you for your plan of salvation. When each of us deserves, rightfully deserves, punishment, judgment, condemnation in hell. Because even though we know the things to do, we don't do it. And God, I know that we don't even remotely grasp the magnitude, the sinfulness of our sin. 
God, what we, what we can grasp sickens us. And Lord, we thank you that in your amazing grace that you have sent Christ, the sinless, to die for the sinner. God, we thank you that you have provided salvation. And we know that there is salvation in no other name given among men. Lord, I thank you that we can call on you. And I pray for that person maybe who's hearing me today and, and for the first time the Holy Spirit is, is dealing with their hearts and they know they've never called on you for salvation. Maybe they've called on you for help in a, a, a time of trouble, but they've never recognized their sin. Lord, I pray that you convict them today. Draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name.